Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The bodies are stacked up. People are too afraid to bury their dead. Almost two weeks on from the massacre by Hamas that left a reported 1,400 Israeli civilians dead, Israel's response has been bloody and sustained, with airstrikes pounding the Gaza Strip and a total blockade on food, electricity, medicine and fuel. Nearly a million Palestinians have fled their homes in the Gaza Strip. Gazan officials say an Israeli strike hit a convoy of fleeing civilians, killing 70 people. There was hope there could be a ceasefire in southern Gaza. That hasn't been reached, but that is the focus now. The death toll in Gaza continues to rise, with reports of more than 3,000 Palestinians having died since the conflict began. A massive explosion at a crowded hospital in Gaza City on Tuesday night killed a reported hundreds of people gathered there for treatment and shelter. Both sides blamed one another. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team. And as Tel Aviv-based journalist Hannah McCarthy explains... Tackling the deepening humanitarian crisis in Gaza is complicated by Israel and Egypt's failure to agree on how to address it. The issue is that they can't do it immediately because it has been bombed, that road that goes from Egypt to Gaza, so they have to have some time to repair it. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, what happened in another disastrous week for the Middle East? I talked to Hannah McCarthy in Israel. Hannah McCarthy, you're a journalist who reports from Lebanon, Palestine and Israel, and you're currently in Tel Aviv. Before we talk about the many things that have happened this week and try to make sense of them, can you set the scene? What is it like in Israel today? Is life going on as normal for Israelis? What's the mood like? So I'm in Tel Aviv, uh, you know, I would say the streets are quieter at night. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, restaurants and bars that are closed. Um, the, the beaches are not busy, but people are continuing, you know, on with their life. Um, you know, businesses and, and companies will definitely be impacted. There have been about 300,000 um, Israelis called up uh, for reserve duty. So that will have had an impact on companies. Uh, but within Tel Aviv, uh, life is, you know, Continuing on, uh, albeit a bit abnormally, the biggest differences will be in the areas around uh, the Gaza border where civilians have been evacuated and also in uh, northern Israel near the Lebanese border where there has also been an evacuation order. Where are Israelis being evacuated to? So elsewhere in the country that that are safer. So I know um, in Gaza there's quite a few people who are based around uh, the Dead Sea um, you know, which is further away from um, where uh, Hamas can target their rockets. Um, 
Some people have been in Tel Aviv, or if they have family, they'll go and stay with them. Now, several kibbutzim were the focus of the savage attack last Saturday. Um, and a kibbutz, it's essentially a small town where traditionally Jewish people live commonly. And there could be many generations of the same extended family living in the same kibbutz. Um, earlier this week, you reported from Kibbutz Be'eri. Uh, that's a kibbutz that's been transformed now into a military base um, after an estimated tenth of its population were killed by Hamas in that Saturday attack. What did you see while you were there? Yeah, well, it, it's quite an eerie scene. You know, you know the roads around the kibbutz uh, are basically de- deserted except for um, you know military vehicles and military personnel and occasionally journalists. Um, the kibbutz, I mean, they have done kind of an initial cleanup, you know, bodies aren't there anymore. Um, but I, I did meet one volunteer with, uh, Zaka, which is this kind of, um, Israeli Jewish faith based, um, organization that's been very active in the cleanup operation, um, following Hamas's massacre. And, you know, they were, you know, combing scenes to make sure they had found every, you know, body part or, you know, hair, uh, or any bloodstained, um, uh, item of clothing to make sure that, you know, uh, to make sure that everything that can be buried uh, with a person's body can be found. Uh, so there was some kind of, you know, quite moving moments like that. But within kibbutz, I mean, the civilians have been evacuated and hundreds of soldiers are now there. Um, they're all kind of, you know, gathering after, you know, leaving their jobs or returning from abroad. Um, I wouldn't say the mood, I think there, there's almost an, an excitement, I would say, actually there. And even along the roads there, you know, outside the evacuation areas, you know, there's hundreds of people who are kind of giving out, you know, free food to Israeli soldiers. The stations along the way are packed out. And I think people have a sense of, you know, let's get going, um, which is obviously we know kind of, you know, from previous wars, that kind of dangerous point where, you know, militaries amass. And, and it's very hard to say no or scale back at that point. Now, not far from there, uh, in the Gaza Strip, hell has been unleashed. The health ministry there has said that over 3,000 people have been killed so far and 12,000 wounded. That's like that's an astonishing amount of human suffering. Um, the incident that has attracted the most attention was the bombing of a hospital, the Al-Ahil Baptist Hospital, where hundreds may have died. And I say may advisedly because the facts around this event are in dispute. What do we know for certain about what happened there? We know for certain that around 7pm on Tuesday, Al-Ahil Hospital in Gaza City uh, was struck by, um, you know, some sort of explosive device. We're not exactly sure what it is. Uh, and that kind of identification is quite technical. And we know that Gaza is in a total siege. You know, there is no resources to send in a, you know, specialist ballistics team to, you know, identify that. You know, there have been uh, initial investigations, you know, by the BBC, um, by, um, you know, New York Times, uh, that have kind of you know gone through some of the footage that uh, that we've been given, um, and again, most of them are erring on the side of saying there needs to be an indefe- independent uh, investigation, and that's actually what uh, the Tishik Leo Vradker has also called for. The IDF, um, you know, has provided um, its 
uh, evidence to journalists and uh, to other governments about why it believes this rocket was a misfired rocket launched by a Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, that has been uh, denied by Hamas. And again, but again, they haven't provided their own evidence in turn to say, you know, why they can conclusively say it wasn't. Um, you know, it is what we would call, you know, a fog of war situation. Uh, and the issue is that, you know, with both sides, there's an issue with credibility. Uh, you know, the IDF in the past has, you know, initially denied something and then months later said, well, actually it was, um, possibly one of our soldiers or it was. So for example, uh, with the killing of Shireen Abu Akla, a Palestinian American journalist who was killed in Janine in 2022, um, initially the Israeli forces denied killing her. They said it was likely a Palestinian, uh, who killed her. And then, you know, later on, they kind of come out and say, yes, it likely was, likely was Israeli fire. So, you know, that doesn't mean that they, you know, this, that does not mean that they are lying in this case, but it means there's a credibility issue. And there are reasons why, you know, Palestinians and other Arab countries uh, are quick to disbelieve what the IDF says. At the same time, we also know that Hamas has misfired rockets. Uh, you know, a Palestinian human rights organization, as well as Human Rights Watch, have reported on the fact that uh, several people were killed in Jabalia in Gaza City uh, during the 2021 Gaza War. So, I mean, that does happen. Uh, you know, there's no point pretending that doesn't happen. Uh, but again, it, it's a fog of war situation. And I think it emphasizes why the seed, the total siege needs to end. And we need to have, you know, some, you know, independent experts in there who can actually provide hard facts. Now, but whatever about the truth of it, um, Hannah, the incident, it unleashed a huge reaction among people in Palestine, obviously, but also across the Middle East. And it seems no matter what evidence emerges, Either way, it's unlikely that either side is going to accept the innocence of the other here. Well, I mean, I think everyone will have seen that, you know, information is very much part of the war tactics here. And, you know, it's not really in either one, either Hamas or uh, the IDF's interest to come out and say, well, actually, I did it right now. Information has and, and facts have been a victim of this war, uh, particularly we've seen how it's played out on social media. And again, part of that is, you know, historical reasons. You know, people in the Middle East have genuine reasons to uh, not trust, um, you know, American politicians and Israeli uh, politicians. You know, many would say, you know, the fact that Biden has said, uh, my security sources have told me that this is accurate. That's not a reason that that's not going to persuade a lot of people uh, in the middle of the Middle East who, you know, still, you know, point to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, that has less left a serious um, issue with credibility. Um, and I know um, Biden, you know, he found out the news about the attack, you know, while he was about to board, board Air Force One on his way and, and really did have very immediate consequences for the, his trip to the Middle East. Uh, he came to Israel. He was supposed to then be going on to Jordan to have a summit with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, and the Egyptian president, Sisi, who were kind of crucial uh, actors in, you know, providing some sort of peaceful resolution. So that was cancelled. You know, people, I'm sure, saw footage of protests, you know, in Lebanon, in Iran, in Turkey, of people outraged um, at what they believed was an Israeli strike on a hospital. I think, again, a lot of analysts would say, even if, you know, Israel has targeted, you know, paramedics, um, they've targeted UNRWA hospitals, 
I think a lot of people would say it's unlikely that they would have deliberately striked a hospital on the eve of a, a visit by Biden. If they're responsible, it seems more likely that it was a mistake. Again, that's up to an independent investigation. But the fact is, you know, the distrust is there and the protests are real. And I think what we know uh, from Arab leaders in these countries is while they may um, want to normalize relations with Israel, uh, their much bigger concern would be, you know, some sort of protest against them by their public. And the fact that they're already on the streets, they're already um, angry, you know, that kind of level of mobilization, you know, that's a concern for Arab leaders. And they're going to take that very seriously. If their public believes this, you know, they have to kind of act accordingly, no matter what the facts are. Well, last week we spoke to another reporter in the region, Mark Weiss, who also reports in the Irish Times. And he said that Israel cares deeply about international opinion and that ultimately it would be international condemnation that might dampen its fierce response to Hamas. Does that perhaps, in your view, explain the intensity of the information war that we're seeing kind of playing out across traditional media and social media this week? I think they are very conscious about um, how informa- how their kind of image is presented and how their policies are presented. Um, you know, on the ground, you know, I- I'm registered with their press office. They have a very sophisticated um, press operation. Um, and again, you know, a lot of the access that journalists get, it's, you know, because the military are arranging it and it's because they've decided this is, you know, sites that they want journalists to see and they're offering they're recommending, you know, legal experts, you know, if journalists want someone on their show, um, you know, they're putting a lot of resources available. Um, they're making a lot of resources available for journalists in the hope of, again, spreading their message or controlling the narrative. Um, so, yes, it's definitely something very, they're very conscious of. Um, again, they have lots of trained spokes, uh, spokespeople for the IDF. Uh, who very much stay on message. And I think a lot of their messaging is, you know, this idea of good versus evil. You know, this is about, you know, w- you know, taking out the bad guys. Um, and again, even, we've even seen that kind of language mirrored by, you know, the uh, White House, which I think has again, que- it's made people question whether, you know, they, the America can be a kind of broker in this, um, in this conflict when they seem to be siding so much with the Israelis. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we'll not let you ever be alone. Well, now, the picture that went around the world, of course, on Wednesday was of U.S. President Joe Biden uh, warmly hugging, I think, uh, the Israeli president, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He, Biden had arrived for a one-day visit, eight hours, I think. But as well as that hug, he offered some words of warning. He said, Israel should not repeat mistakes that the United States made after 9-11. Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. It's also been reported that he gave his backing to a planned ground invasion of Gaza by Israeli troops. Is that ground invasion now inevitable? Look, I think it's always important that I don't think we should ever maybe phrase ground invasions or invasions as necessarily inevitable. There's always political decisions that can be made. But I mean, 
the fact that you know 300,000 troops have amassed on the border, the fact that um, we're expecting to hear um, you know the U.S. administration announcing that it's giving a, a large amount of military aid to the Israel, which I would note that a, a U.S. State Department official has publicly resigned over, um, who would have been a close advisor um, to Biden on this and who had worked with distributing arms to allies of the U.S. You know, he came out publicly and said he couldn't stand over, you know, the distribution of, of that much military aid to Israel at this point. Um, so I think, you know, with a large amount of military aid from the U.S., um, it's hard to see, you know, that that would not be used for a ground invasion. But I think that the warning of 9-11 is coming through to the Israeli public. I, I just had a call before this um, this um, interview with um, with someone who lost their parents in the Hamas massacre. Uh, and both he and his brother uh, have been coming out publicly against the war. They're saying, you know, that's that's not what we think is going to bring about a, a resolution. You know, that's not how we were raised. You know, we were from, you know, again, the kind of more liberal kibbutzes in the South. Um, and, you know, he talked about 9-11. He said, you know, like, I, I think we need to l- learn the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan. We can't try and control a land that, you know, doesn't want us and that will be impossible uh, to manage. And he, he said, you know, he, he didn't even feel like it was just a peace question. Tactically, he thinks, you know, it seems unwise to to be going in. Uh, so I think I think that messaging and you know the fact that we have you know recent memory of the Iraq War and the post mortem that was uh, conducted on that and you know that message you know um, you know what 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 happens the day after you know you win the invasion like what do you do then and what's your plan and I think Biden has been emphasizing that with Netanyahu's government. Coming up. I continue my conversation with Hannah McCarthy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for another bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Reports this week of the humanitarian situation inside Gaza have been really hard to watch and read. We know that there are more than two million people packed into this tiny strip of land, um, it's less than half the size of Louth, uh, to give it some sort of perspective for uh, listeners. People are running out of food, water, power has been cut off. We've seen harrowing reports from hospitals where they've even been running out of anaesthetics and medics have had to resort to surgery without anaesthetic. And that, of course, is the backdrop of 12,000 people already been injured this week in, the, in this war. 
Now, at the end of his trip, Biden said that Israel will allow humanitarian aid to cross from Egypt into the southern Gaza Strip. That was the big announcement, I think, from his visit. Netanyahu, he confirmed that food, water and medicine would be allowed for Gaza refugees in the south of the Strip. But that's only on condition that the aid doesn't fall into the hands of Hamas. How difficult is that delivery going to be? Yeah, and I think there's just one thing I would emphasize, like when we talk about, you know, Israel allowing food to cross that border, you know, that border has nothing to do with Israel technically. It is an Egyptian Gaza border. Uh, And the fact that, you know, Israel has to give its permission to allow the aid crossing, you know, it's kind of significant for two reasons. A, what it's basically saying is if you don't have our permission, we will, we'll bomb the crossing, um, which has happened in the, in previous days uh, since the conflict began. And it's also slightly changing the calculus for how aid is delivered into the Gaza Strip. It, it used to go through uh, Erez Crossing, uh, which uh, Palestinian factions uh, briefly took over and which has now been reclaimed by the Israelis who have said, absolutely not, there is no aid going through the Israeli-Gaza border uh, and not just no aid, but also no foreign citizens, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, a kind of interesting to note that, you know, after such a big visit from Biden that not even American citizens have been evacuated. In terms of this aid that is crossing uh, through Rafa, uh, we know that 20 trucks uh, are planned to cross, to make that crossing. The issue is that they can't do it immediately because it has been bombed, that road that goes from Egypt to Gaza. So they have to have some time to repair it. So I spoke to someone um, who is in Gaza at the moment working for the UN, and they said they expect that to be Friday morning when they get aid. There will obviously then be a distribution process. Um, I think it's interesting that they have said, you know, it, we're going to be monitoring this to make sure none of the aid goes to Hamas. So obviously, uh, Israel regular, um, uses drones to monitor and surveil the Gaza Strip. But how that will work in terms of monitoring how food might get up north uh, where we know that there are still large amounts of civilians, I think there's still an estimated 100,000 people in Gaza City, and we know not all of them are Hamas militants. Um, so th- the monitoring of that and how that will slow down the aid response, uh, only time will tell. And it's also important to note that they have not said they're allowing fuel in. And so that, again, could, you know, that will still have quite serious consequences for hospitals operating on generators, for people traveling in cars, trying to move uh, through the Gaza Strip. So you talk about Gaza City, that's in the north and people still being there, because, of course, the Israelis have commanded, ordered that residents of Gaza flee south, the rationale being that they'll be safe south while Israel tries to to find the the Sorry, I've got a bomb. We've got to go into the bomb shelter. Oh, are you okay what happened it's the air raid warning so you have to go downstairs and then you kind of wait for kind of a couple of blasts and then so you know that the iron dome has taken out the rockets but it's quite it's quite fast as you can see actually how are you told that there's a warning is there a is it outside is it on your phone you hear i have an app on my phone and then you also get this kind of quite loud warning um 
kind of a big siren that goes off. Um, uh, we were talking about the fact that Israel has commanded uh, the residents of Gaza flee to the south for their own safety, uh, Israel says. Um, but of course, we know how utterly impractical and impossible for people this is in many cases. And I think a tragic example being the loss of life in the hospital this week because the hospital was used as a safe haven by desperate Palestinians. Now, Egypt has agreed to open its border crossing with the Gaza Strip to allow aid to reach Palestinians. But will it also be allowing refugees to cross its border? So I was actually just speaking to a, a diplomat this morning and, and his view is that that is, that's off the cards. Uh, Sisi has been quite strong about him, about saying he doesn't want Palestinian refugees in Egypt. Uh, the economy is, uh, quite bad in Egypt and he fears that if he allows, um, Palestinian refugees into Egypt, Israel will not allow them to return. Uh, he, he's a bit of a Trumpian figure, so he kind of comes out with uh, some quite bombastic comments, and you know, I think one of his responses is, "You, know, why not host them in in Israel if you're if you're so concerned about them?" Which is obviously something that Israel is not going to entertain. Um, so it, it looks like that's off the co- the cards for the moment, at least. Hannah, as terrible as this is, what about the potential for it to get even worse? We we spoke about the fury in the Middle East over the deaths of hundreds of people, in as much as we know, at the Al-Ahli Hospital. Hezbollah, that's the militant group in Lebanon, um, it's been engaged in some exchanges of fire with Israel along the border. Iran's leadership stated that they would take some sort of action, we don't know what, if the assault on Gaza continued, and presumably if the, if the ground uh, attack starts. Is there any real potential there, though, for this conflict to spread beyond Israel? And Palestine. Um, so we have definitely seen an escalation um, on the Lebanese-Israeli border. I know the DFA has, you know, told its um, Irish citizens in Lebanon to leave while they are commercial flights. Uh, Middle Eastern Airlines, which is the Lebanese national airliner, it has said it's keeping some of its um, aircrafts in Turkey for safekeeping. Um, Beirut Airport is kind of regularly attacked in some of these um, kind of these conflicts. Um, so there's, and there's also, you know, the fact that, you know, there is so much public anger in these countries, you know, there's all sorts of potential for, you know, kind of, you know, lone wolf attacks or, um, you know, even after, um, the Hamas attack on Saturday, we saw that, you know, two Israeli tourists, um, were shot dead in Egypt. Um, so there's definitely, um, the possibility for not even necessarily states to get involved, but small groups within these countries uh, who feel galvanized by uh, what they're seeing in Gaza or are just opportunistically using this as a window uh, to tap into the public mood. Um, so, there, and, and again, we're seeing, you know, I think, Israeli diplomatic staff are withdrawing from the region where they had uh, diplomatic relations. Uh, they were withdrawn from Jordan um, recently when we saw uh, protests following the Al-Akhli um, attack uh, so there is definitely um, a sense that, you know, um, it's a tinderbox at the moment, which is also why Netanyahu may be under pressure, though, to hold off on a ground invasion um, by the U.S. administration on the basis that this could have, you know, far reaching consequences beyond just, you know, the Gaza Strip. 
Thanks very much, Hannah. Thanks very much. That's it for today. For more reporting and analysis on the Israel-Hamas war and the humanitarian crisis in Palestine, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and John Casey. In the news, we'll be back on Monday. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.